In our lifetime, it's just about certain that at some point we will witness the coronation of a king. Uh, We haven't had a king on the throne uh, since 1952 when King George VI passed away. But our beloved Elizabeth, who is, I believe, 94 this year, is she's getting older. And though she is a treasured figure in the hearts of many Englishmen and those throughout the Commonwealth, the time will probably come in our lifetime where we will witness the coronation of a king. Perhaps it'll be Charles, William, or maybe even young George who will ascend to the throne of England. And on that day, they're going to call up the Archbishop of Canterbury. They'll probably spend months decorating Westminster Abbey. He'll be arrayed in royal regalia and have a scepter in his hand. Many celebrities will be invited, I'm sure. And at some point, a crown will be placed on his head. And from that day, he will rule as sovereign over England and the Commonwealth at large. And that will be a glorious day. I look forward to witnessing that day some point in my lifetime. Yet as we enter the 27th chapter of Matthew's gospel, he draws our attention to a, another coronation service of sorts. And it's not one in our future, but about 2,000 years in our past. Matthew 27, in a sense, is the coronation of Jesus Christ. And although it too was a glorious day in some sense, the glory of that day is not immediately apparent as you read the account that Pete just read for us. It's actually a very dark day, the darkest day in human history. It is the day of the highest treason ever committed. This is the day that we murdered the King of Glory. And as much as we've had an order of service today, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, if you turn there, Jesus foretells his own order of service, what would happen to him as he approached Jerusalem. It says this. It says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. That was the order of service for the coronation of Jesus, mocked and flogged and crucified. You see, flogging is a punishment that's been administered by many cultures throughout history. In fact, if you trace it back even uh, to Australian convict history, flogging was administered in Australia not that long ago. Uh, My wife and I, Alice, we were in Tasmania late last year and we stood at the whipping post of Richmond Jail and it was very sobering considering how many men were beaten at this post. But as severe as floggings were for convicts in Australia, there's a sense in which they were quite humane. A doctor would always be present for the flogging and if the victim did so happen to pass out, the doctor would call off the flogging and once the wounds had healed and it was given time, then the rest of the punishment would be administered at a later date. Even the Jews of Jesus' day had humane actions of their own. They had a rule that no man could be flogged any more than 40 times. And so often the number they would administer was 39, just in case there was a miscount. But unlike Australian convict history or the Jews, the Romans were not so humane. Sometimes the soldiers would be called off by their superior officer, but often the soldiers stopped when they felt exhausted. You see, the Romans had three different methods of flogging or scourging, as they called it. They, 
they had a light level beating known as the fustigatio. And you could be given that just for being a bit of a hooligan. The second level of scourging was what was called the flagellatio, which is a very brutal flogging. But the worst of all was one that was called the verberatio. And that is the scourging that Jesus received in verse 26 of Matthew 27. And this kind of flogging was particularly reserved as a precursor for crucifixion. The victim was stripped and then tied to a post, hands above head, and they were beaten with a particularly deadly whip. And often the beatings were so severe, the victim didn't even make it to the cross. They died during the beating. And they wouldn't just aim for your back. Any part of your body could be targeted. It was all open game. For those of you who have seen Mel Gibson's The Passion, that's not Hollywood dramatisation. That is a true reflection of a Roman scourging. And yet, that's just the warm-up. The worst part was still ahead of Jesus. That wretched Roman method of torture, that was crucifixion. Cicero, the ancient Roman statesman and philosopher, said, It is a crime to put a Roman citizen in chains. It is an enormity to flog one. Sheer murder to slay one. What then shall I say of crucifixion? It is impossible to find the word for such an abomination. You see, even for the Romans, who were quite famous for crucifying people, it was a bit of a taboo. It wasn't something you discussed in civilised conversation. Even Julius Caesar himself, one of the uh, leaders of Rome, had his own reservations about it. And sometimes he would take preliminary measures to make sure that the victim uh, would have their sufferings eased. He found it quite disturbing and he was the leader of Rome. This was the most wretched punishment reserved only for the worst kinds of insurrectionists and criminals and terrorists. But it was never administered to Roman citizens. You see, having had their body severely beaten through scourging, the victim was then nailed hands and feet to a wooden cross, often that they were asked to carry. And the weight of the victim would hang from these wounds. And it made it so difficult for them to breathe. As we discussed two weeks ago, crucifixion was a death of suffocation. And so as they would hang there, struggling to breathe, they would push through these wounds, only to have their severely beaten back rub up against a coarse wooden cross. And that cycle would continue, sometimes for days at a time. Crucifixion was disgusting. And if if Cicero didn't have a word for it, there was a word that was later developed to describe this unique pain of crucifixion. And it's where we get the English word excruciating from. It basically translates pain of the cross. As the old saying goes, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Well, this is what the Romans did. And they had quite a reputation for it. Now, there are many more gory details you could share about crucifixion. It is a wretched death. But you have to ask yourself the question, how many of those details are found on the pages of Matthew's Gospel? Very little, if any. (laughs) In fact, for the author of this Gospel, he spends very little time on the torture and a lot of time on the taunting. 
That's what Matthew wants to show you here. Look with me throughout this chapter how mockery permeates this account. And it begins with the soldiers. It says a whole battalion of them mocked Jesus. This could be up to 600 men or a significant portion of them. And Roman soldiers, they were notorious for making fun of their victims as if the scourging wasn't enough. Sometimes they would dress up their victims in costumes and even dress them up like pieces on a giant game board and move them around the game board and make fun of them. This is the gravest kind of evil, kicking people when they're already down. (laughs) And they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. (laughs) They thought it was a joke. But it didn't stop with the soldiers. There were two robbers crucified next to Jesus. The text calls them robbers. What they really were were terrorists. And even though they were condemned to the same fate, they had the audacity to mock Jesus. So it was the soldiers, the criminals hanging next to him, but it didn't stop there. The religious leaders also mocked Jesus. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Right, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. But it didn't stop there either. You see, there were people passing by who didn't even have anything to do with him. And it says that they were wagging their heads. And if I can be so bold as to paraphrase what these passers-by were saying in Australian speak, it would have sounded something like this. Oh, big man, up there on the cross, hey? Where's your palace at, king of the Jews? How's that temple destruction thing working out for you? Hmm? Go on, get down, get after it. Oh, you're not stuck up there, are you? King of the Jews. They mocked him. In fact, the word there is they derided him. Now, that word derided in Greek usually translates as the word blasphemed. And that's exactly what's going on. They're blaspheming the king. Paul said it well, the cross was a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But there's an irony here. (laughs) Jesus was put to death on the charge of blasphemy. But Matthew shows us that it's not Jesus that's guilty of blasphemy, but everyone else on the scene. Matthew, as he's penning this gospel, is mocking the mockers. He's showing us that ironically, everyone else in this scene spoke better than they knew. Because Jesus is the King of the Jews. He is the Son of God. (laughs) Douglas O'Donnell said it this way the soldiers adoration and enthronement is a farce yet if we remove their appalling attitudes from their actions take away the parody of the wreath of thorns as golden garland a soldier's cloak as royal robe a reed as scepter and the adulation due caesar conferred upon christ we have the truth set before us what he's saying is, is they spoke better than they knew You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Destroying the temple, that's precisely what Jesus is doing up there on the cross. Remember in John 2, 19 to 21, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus was destroying the temple. He saved others, he cannot save himself. Oh, he could have. Absolutely he could have. He made that clear to Peter the night before. Peter swung the sword at the priest's ear. And Jesus said, hey, Peter, I could end this really quickly. 
I can call down 12 legions of angels to rescue me really quickly. And no doubt he could have done the same thing here as he hung on the cross, felt the pain in his body and the mockery from the crowd. He could have saved himself. But he didn't save himself because he was more concerned about saving others. Do you see the irony there? He saved others. He cannot save himself. Well, saving others was his primary concern. Again, Douglas O'Donnell said it well. He said, perhaps the greatest miracle of all was his miraculous non-miracle, staying on the cross for our salvation. You see, if the human condition can be described as recalcitrant hostility towards God, then what we have here in Matthew 27 is simply the human condition in narrative form. You see, it shouldn't be hard for you to find yourself in this narrative this morning. This is a story about you and me. You see, although we weren't there 2,000 years ago, we have been born into sin. And with every rebellious act, every self-serving ambition, every lustful thought, every harsh word, in fact, our entire heart's disposition, we have spent our days mocking God Almighty. You see, we're guilty of the same blasphemy and treason that we see here. You see, the political atmosphere that you and I live in is a democracy. But the cosmic atmosphere that we live in is a monarchy. Jesus is the king. As R.C. Sproul said it, every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God in his sovereign authority. And the penalty for such high treason is death. And here we see Jesus suffering that penalty on our behalf. Two weeks ago, we looked at the horror of Gethsemane, where he was foreboding what was coming. And now that has become his present reality as he's drinking the cup of his father's wrath. And that's why he cries out there, why have you forsaken me? And he's quoting the first line of Psalm 22 that we read a moment ago. This was a dark day. And it was such a dark day that darkness manifested itself literally. It says that there was darkness all over the land. And you can't write that off as an eclipse or a sandstorm. This is a cataclysmic event. In fact, there are Roman historical records that existed around the time of the early church fathers that testified to this particularly dark day. As Matthew Henry described it, the sun had never seen such wickedness as this before, and it therefore withdrew. Jesus was mocked and flogged and crucified and abandoned. And it's your fault. It's my fault. It's our fault. Let's consider that for a moment as we take communion together. Jesus said these words. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains just as a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If we have died with him, we shall live with him here in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor is it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the curtain was torn and then it says that there was an earthquake. And the the shakes were so severe that rocks began to split, tombs began to open and Old Testament believers, Old Covenant saints were raised from the dead. 
You see, having been subject to a day of mockery with the death of Jesus, heaven decided it was going to start dishing out some mockery of its own. You see, with his death, Jesus mocked sin and death. And although his resurrection was three days away, and although the resurrection of all believers is yet future, heaven decided it would put on a teaser trailer. (laughs) Jesus mocked sin and death. And he said, do you want to know what my son just accomplished? Take a look at the tombs. Death is swallowed up in victory. You see, the death of Jesus was a curtain-tearing, earth-shattering, rock-splitting, tomb-opening, dead-raising event. And the evidence of this was so clear to those looking on. Even the very soldiers who pierced his hands, the very ones who crucified him, the centurion, those who were with him. Look at what they say in verse 54. Truly, this was the Son of God. These miraculous signs might seem strange to us, but to those in the first century, the evidence was clear. Jesus is the Son of God. You see, as we consider these events on Good Friday, there's only one of two responses we can come away with. You will either roll your eyes and mock, as many did in Matthew 27, or you will bend your knee and worship. Those are the only two responses here. So let me ask you this morning, is the cross foolishness to you as it was to them? Or will you, like the centurion, recognize the truth that Jesus is the Son of God? That though Jesus is the King who conquers through suffering, He is the King nonetheless. I'd like to finish by reading these words from the Puritan writer J.C. Ryle. And then we'll move into our next time of worship. Was he scourged? It was that through his stripes we might be healed. Was he condemned, though innocent? It was that we might be acquitted, though guilty. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was that we might wear the crown of glory. Was he stripped of his raiment? It was that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It was that we might be honoured and blessed. Was he reckoned a malefactor and numbered among the transgressors? It was that we might be reckoned innocent and justified from all sin. Was he declared unable to save himself? It was that he might be able to save others to the uttermost. Did he die at last and at the most painful and disgraceful of deaths? It was that we might live forevermore and be exalted to the highest glory.